Blog Talk Radio. Are you tired of being sheep? Well, so is he. Get a friend, get informed, and get involved. It's We Are Not Cattle Radio. Good evening and welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio. I'm your host, Jake Counts, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia. It is the 18th day of July 2013, and for some reason it looks like that they have me only knocked down for 15 minutes, so I'm very puzzled. So if you're tuning in live, thank you for joining me. I'm... Don't know how I'm going to get this through because um, I'm going to have a couple of guys calling in live here in a little bit. So hopefully, I guess everything will kind of work itself out. So thanks for joining me, everybody. Like I said, podcast number 17 in the We Are Not Cattle radio archives. Um, A lot of stuff to get into. I had some interesting experiences today. I also have had an interesting last couple of days um, helping out with the Adam versus the Man podcast, amongst other things. But um, I did want to share a quick story before I get into the news and the uh, the topic for the show today. So, um, wow, I really don't know what to do right now because for some reason this is only giving me like 15 minutes. I'm very puzzled, or 13 minutes of airtime. So, um, and I don't think I can reschedule another show, so I might just have to do a a tape to tape to air or something like that. So, good gosh. Well, anyway, like I said, welcome to live radio. For some reason, I guess this got a little screwed up, but we'll just have to roll with it. And um yeah, so interesting thing happened to me today. I was um I was leaving LA Fitness. I usually go out and work out about anywhere from 3 to 5 times a a week just to kind of keep in shape, you know. And um so I went to uh, I went to LA Fitness and I was walking out and um I just finished up my workout and there was a cop up at the front desk and he was taking down some notes. So and it looks like we got some guys that are typing in here and um hopefully yeah, it looks like I've got some guys typing in. Let's see. There should be a way to extend the show. Yeah, I know. Um if you guys have any if you guys have any luck, you know what? Instead of just doing this uh, show kind of half-cocked here, I'm going to play a clip really quick, and then um, hopefully... Oh, thanks. Now I'm live on LMR also. So, great. So, if you're tuning in on Liberty Movement Radio, thanks for listening in. If you guys want to call into the show, 602-753-1916, you should be able to call the Skype login number. But, um, you know what? I am going to... Um, I'm going to go to an audio clip really quick so I can get this stuff kind of figured out. What's a good clip for you guys to listen to while we're waiting? Um, how about, you know, this might just, um, let's just go uh, Confessions of an Economic Hitman. That'll give me about two minutes to try to figure out how to how to extend the show. So thanks for listening, everybody, and um, we'll be right back in about two minutes. Hopefully I can figure this out. We economic hitmen really have been the ones responsible for creating this first truly global empire. And we work many different ways. 
but perhaps the most common is that we will identify a, a country that has resources our corporations covet, like oil, and then arrange a huge loan to that country from the World Bank or one of its sister organizations. But the money never actually goes to the country. Instead, it goes to our big corporations to build infrastructure projects in that country, power plants, industrial parks, ports, things that benefit a few rich people in that country, in addition to our corporations, but really don't help the majority of the people at all. However, those people, the whole country is left holding a huge debt. It's such a big debt they can't repay it, and that's part of the plan, that they can't repay it. And so at some point, we economic hitmen go back to them and say, listen, you lost a lot of money, can't pay your debts, so sell your oil real cheap to our oil companies. Allow us to build a military base in your country or send troops in support of ours to someplace in the world like Iraq or vote with us on the next UN vote to have their electric utility company privatized and their water and sewage system privatized and sold to U.S. corporations or other multinational corporations. So there's a whole mushrooming thing and it's so typical of the way the IMF and the World Bank work. If you put a country in debt, it's such a big debt it can't pay it, and then you offer to refinance that debt and it pay even more interest. And you demand this quid pro quo, which you call a conditionality or good governance, which means basically that they've got to sell off their resources, including many of their social services, their utility companies, their school systems sometimes, their, their, their penal systems, their insurance systems to foreign corporations. So it's a, it's a double, triple, quadruple whammy. All right, so there we go, guys. It bought me enough time. I did get everything kind of switched around, so we are good to go. Let's just do a reset. All right, welcome to We Are Not Cattle Radio podcast, episode number 17, coming to you live from Atlanta, Georgia, every Tuesday and Thursday night from 9 p.m. until 11 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. This is the People's Show of the Liberty Movement. If you want to get involved, if you are not a cattle, if you are not a slave, if you're not a sheep, call in. Let's do it. You know, let's share the message of liberty. Talk about how you've impacted others. But, you know, the topic for the show today, and I'll get into the actual show itself here in a moment after the story, but the topic of the show really does have to revolve around the economy, where we're going, what happened, how did we get here? And I've got a whole bunch of articles to support how we got here, the craziness that ensued in case anybody had forgotten it, which a lot of people, you know, with the with the recent events, I would – listen, I'm not going to be surprised if you forgot stuff that happened four years ago, five years ago. I mean I forgot a lot of it until I reread some of this stuff. One of them is a New York Times article that I'm going to read about Hank Paulson and just about the craziness that was going on and and just nobody nobody giving a nobody giving a rip in the Senate or the House. And that's why we're here. And now you've got people trying to piecemeal this thing back together, coming in and trying to bring bring in Glass Steagall again and and doing some really good things, but you know, a lot of economists say it might be too late, but hey, you know, at least at least we can point at who's at fault. Cuz we all know who's at fault. If you and if you don't know who's at fault, I'm going to I'm going to clue you in. And it's not you people, it's not you the American people, it's not you nation, you know, fellow humans around the world, it's not you guys. It's not your fault. It's the bankers, it's the deregulation, it's the, I mean, it's all of it. 
And it all kind of snowballed into this thing that we have now, which is just basically a ticking time bomb. So let me get into the story that happened to me today. Once again, it was I go and I work out. I get my workout in, play a little bit of basketball. I'm leaving. Walking out of LA Fitness, I see a cop up there. And I've got to turn my basketball in because they like sign it out. It's just, it's ridiculous. So I turn my basketball back in. And um, and I just, you know, start making nice with the cop. I mean, he's there. I'm there. I'm like, hey, man, what's going on? He's like, hey, how you doing? I'm like, everybody behaving themselves today? He's like, yeah, for the most part. I'm like, all right, cool. You know, have a good day. He's like, okay, cool. Yeah, have a good one. So then there's a, uh, there's a Kroger right next to the... To the store that I go to, or to the uh, to the LA Fitness that I go to. I mean, it's literally you know, 50 feet to the right. So I get out there and I go, you know, put my duds in the car and start walking over to start walking over to the uh, to the Kroger. Oh, by the way, the cop of course didn't park in the parking slot. He parked in the fire lane right in front of LA Fitness. No lights on, no nothing, no car running. Just kept going. So. I just cruise on out, and I'm starting to walk in, and there's a couple of speed bumps, and then there's a stop sign, and then here comes the cop, and I'm, you know, about 10, 15 feet behind the person in front of me, and um, and it's an older gentleman, and then there's a, and then there's an older lady next to me, and um and she and I, you know, stop. The cop comes up to the stop sign, doesn't even stop, rolls right through it, almost almost clips the older guy and just kind of cruises off. Not really cruises, you know, steps on the accelerator a little bit and just juices it off a little bit. So So here's what happens. So he blows the stop sign. And everybody kind of looks and then, this is just atypical Americans. Nobody says anything. And he's got his window down, and he's probably, you know, 10 feet from me. And I start yelling at him. I'm like, hey, man, just because you got a badge doesn't mean that you can disobey the stop sign and almost hit two pedestrians. What are you doing? And and then the people start chiming in with me. Like, yeah, what was that? What's that all about? You know, and then I had a like a two or three minute conversation with one of the guys that was there, the older gentleman that almost got hit. I'm like, sir, I'm sorry, you're all right? And he goes, yeah, I'm fine. So I gave him my card and I said, listen, I'm an alternative media. I'm like, that's one of the many problems that we got going on in our country. If you wanna, if you wanna be part of the solution, you know, check out, you know, check out my um, my radio show and <clears throat> and uh, and see if you know you wanna you wanna get involved. And so he and I had a nice little chat. And then the other lady that was there with us was like, yeah, what was going on with that? And I said, you know, it's it's sad that that's typical. But I don't want to say it's typical for every cop because it's just typical for my area. Not every cop is bad. There's a lot of great cops out there, constitutional guys, just guys that are just on point trying to do the right thing. But then you have guys that just do it because they want a power trip or, you know, they just think that – I mean – I knew when I walked out front and I saw the cop car parked out front, I mean, even if it was just a short stop or something, dude, just use a parking slot like everybody else if it's not an emergency. You don't got to pull up in the fire lane and block everybody. But so that was 
that was how my afternoon started out. So just an interesting little story, but it's just a microcosm of what goes on here in my neck of the woods. I don't know if that goes on in your neck of the woods, but and you can you can hear the southernisms come out with the neck of the woods and all that other stuff. But um it's it's really weird, it's really creepy. And um so here's a here's a quick little article to get to, and this was on um this was on MSN this morning. And uh, and this really does kind of tie, you know, piggybacking on top of what I was just talking about. And it says, the NYPD apparently using Darth Vader's theme song to get pumped up on calls. And it says, and the article goes on to say, everybody needs a theme song. And it doesn't matter if you're Stone Cold Steve Austin when the glass shatters or Mariano Rivera with Inner Sandman. You need something impressive to announce your presence. Kind of like Nuke Lelouch from Bull Durham, announce your presence with authority. Which, once again, another double pun right there. And it says, for the New York Police Department, that song is apparently Darth Vader's theme song from the music Star Wars. But for the big nerds out there, which, I mean, if you're listening to my podcast, you're probably a little bit of a nerd, a little bit of a libertarian, a little bit of everything. You're probably pretty well-rounded. But you all know what it's called, and it says, The music from Star Wars is more properly known as the Imperial March. How fitting. How fitting that we got guys in black uniforms strutting around, acting tough, to have the Imperial March as their theme song. And it says, New York Magazine relays two separate stories from the Park Slope neighborhood of Brooklyn of the New York police cruiser driving around blasting the Imperial March en route to a call. Lights are twirling. It's unknown if this is just one car's practice or if the LAPD isn't pleased with trying to find the officers in questions. It says, oh, oh, he says, but the LA or the NYPD apparently isn't pleased and is trying to find the officers in question. And it said, we'd pick the theme from Batman, but that's just us. So, once again, it's it's society. We're we're kind of bringing this on ourselves, and I hate to say that, but it's just the way it is. I mean, if you if you lay down, if you don't stand up, if you don't say something, I mean, think about how it works in just little little cliques and little groups that you work with, or little cliques that you, or if you if you went to college, you always had a group project to do, and look at how it always worked in a group project. You would get that one person that would try to be the alpha leader, they would try to take the lead, and then if nobody stood up, then that was the person you went with all of their ideas, you went and did all of their things, because they were the ones that were trying to be you know, in charge. And it's the same kind of thing. If you just let them be in charge, if you let them get away with doing stupid stuff like this, although I'm talking about you know real nitpicky things, but in the overall cascading grand scheme of things, those nitpicky things, if you let it, it's kind of like having you know a, a child or a dog or anything. If you if you give them an inch, they're just going to keep taking, 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 and taking. And those are the guys that pull, you know bust people's windows out at checkpoints and yank them out of cars. It's just those are the people that do it because they've gotten away with it. And so we need to start standing up. And don't stand up and try to get physical with them. Just point it out. Just be like, hey man, what what's the deal? And if they come over and get in your face, then that's when you start videotaping. But we have to stop letting people do things like this. I don't care if you are a law enforcement or not. 
it's not the right behavior that you want to project among the society. I mean, that, that, that doesn't say a whole lot for for what we're you know what we're trying to go through together because we're all going to go through this together because this economic thing that's coming, it's not going to be fun. And do I? I keep getting asked, you know, multiple people are asking me. They're like, when is this going to – and nobody really knows. The bond market, nobody knows. You can take speculations. You can take guesses. I mean that's something I don't want to be right on. I don't want to say, oh, it will happen in a year and a half, and then it happens in a year and a half. It's like, oh, look, look, Jake from We Are Not Cattle was right. Dude, I don't want to be right about this. But the fact of the matter is we have way overextended ourselves. Over the last two regimes, it's been absolutely bonkers. And now you have Jimmy Carter coming out saying the government's illegitimate. You got Paul Craig Roberts, who's, you know, the head of who is the head of policy, the father of Reaganomics, saying that this government's out of control. I mean, everybody knows that it's out of control. But what do we do? And you got to start local, guys. You got to start speaking out locally. Do things locally. Get people involved in conversation. Engage people. Remember before we had television and the internet, people actually used to congregate together and share things and, and, and share experiences and time together. Now we're becoming desensitized and we're basically becoming dehumanized by it. Technology gives us the ability to do things, but it's kind of the double-edged sword. There's always the double-edged sword. It's like, the oh, the NSA spying on us. It's like, oh, great, well, then get me out of my traffic ticket and show them that I wasn't speeding. Oh, no, we can't do that, but we can do other things. So let's start into the financial side of things. Jake, how did we get here? Well, for those of you that that study a little bit of history, even if you don't study a lot, and if I can recommend any movies, I would recommend you can go to my um, you can go to my website, wearenotcattle.net, to make it easy. You can go under the documentaries tab and just go right down the list. That'll kind of get you up to speed. But if you want the real quick, short, and easy version of it, uh, The Secret of Oz is about two hours. That's by, um, I think it's Ben Stills that did it. But um, that's not, I mean, that's the in-depth version. If you want like the one glance over, it's called The American Dream. It's about 25 minutes, a little cartoon. Kind of gets you up to speed on the bankers and everything. Doesn't get you into all the social engineering and mind control. Those are you know different different avenues that you're going to have to go down, and you're going to have to do research on your own. I actually just found out a bunch of stuff last night from watching the documentary that was streaming live on um, on Infowars called State of Mind. I learned a ton, and not only did I learn a ton, I got little data points that I want to go research some more because it was just interesting. It's kind of like if you ever sat there and thought about. Dude, how did the Germans ever let that happen to them? And it was mind control. And so when you start looking into it, I got clips of mind control. I played them last week, or excuse me, last podcast that are really good. And it's, you know, five or six minutes, but it's action packed and it lets you know, you know, kind of where it all began. So, how we got here? Well, in 1913, the Federal Reserve Act was established. It took away the power of the basically the power of controlling the currency from the U.S. government and put it and Congress and put it into the hands of a private banking group. Now the reason for this was supposedly to stabilize the economy so they wouldn't have a vested interest. But as it turns out, they do have a vested interest. 
literally, and they have stockholders. They have vested interests. Interests. So, anyway, flash forward to 100 years from then. Our dollar is worth roughly, I've seen numbers all, all the way up to 98%. Let's just say... Let's just say 92% or better is worth 92% less than what it was back then. And if you're wondering to yourself why prices are rising, or it seems like prices are rising, prices aren't rising. Your dollar is just not going as far as it was. And so with that being said, there were a couple of little regulations. Actually, not little ones. It's one called Glass-Steagall. It's a pretty big deal. It basically separated... Um, commercial investment banks from your FDIC banks. It should be your personal bank accounts. So I'm going to come down here. I have a clip from Ron Paul where he talks about Glass-Steagall, I hope, if it hadn't gotten deleted yet. But he does a really good summation of what Glass-Steagall does, and that's one of the regulations that got thrown out, and that got thrown out in, in Clinton's era. Because what happens when you remove – here it is. When you remove Glass-Steagall, which basically put limitations on the amount of money that you could – that the banks could basically play with. You know, They couldn't combine the commercial and investment side of things, but now they can. So they make it like a giant casino, and that's where all these bad housing loans and that's where all of this stuff stemmed from. And that's why people like John Corzine would make 30 and 40 to 1 bets. With other people's money because they were backed up by the Fed and they can get bailed out. And the really sad, quote unquote, if you want to call it this, but it's not really calling it a conspiracy, it's documented fact that Ben Bernanke wrote his doctoral thesis on the reason that the Great Depression occurred is because the big banks didn't bail out, or excuse me, the Fed didn't bail out the big banks soon enough. Let me say that again. His reasoning for the economic crisis, which the bankers created on record, the bankers created the crisis. His reasoning was that the Federal Reserve didn't prop up the banks soon enough, and it caused instability and then ensued. But what's so crazy is that the depression shouldn't have lasted as long as it did. It was mostly psychological after a point. And that's why I try to get you to understand that that it's so much more than just being quote unquote awake. Being awake is fine. Having information is fine. Having knowledge is a completely different thing. And that's what we're going for here. We're going for the knowledge. We're going for the connection of the dots and then what you do after you connect the dots, how you share the knowledge that you have with people and how you get them engaged. Because let's face it, we are up against the biggest propaganda machine and the most overtly censored propaganda that I have ever seen in my life. Of course – I'm relatively new to the game, five years being quote-unquote awake. I'm relatively new. But does that mean that I can't tell that the propaganda has gotten worse and worse and worse over the years? No, absolutely not. 
And then there's the way that the news is presented. And they set you up for this, people. They've set the American public up for this. Social engineers are very smart. They set you up by this, or for this, by basically feeding you a mixture of news and then entertainment. And news and then entertainment. And then all of a sudden, entertainment became news and entertainers became news. I remember where there was never talk about anybody except for like Michael Jackson when I was growing up. And that would be very – it would be like Michael Jackson's coming to Atlanta, and that was it. But now if you, even if you watch local news, they report on – they report on mainstream like outside – especially if it's a slow news day. They report on you know mainstream popular culture. Oh, Kim Kardashian had her baby today. Oh, it's so exciting. Barack Obama killed 250 kids with drones. Nope. Don't get that. So the reason that we're in the spot that we're in is, number one, we got financially hosed by the central bankers and by the big mega banks. And when I was talking to The Economist, which I'm going to have on, the gentleman was great. He's a great public speaker. The one guy asked him, well, it seems like it's always Goldman Sachs. And he says that there's always going to be somebody throughout history that's going to have a very vested interest. And that's true. And it's just in the modern times, Goldman Sachs now is is the one that's at the at the head of the at the head of the beast. It used to be like J.P. Morgan Chase. So the, you know the the levers and the and and the organizations kind of teeter totter, but the actual system and that's in place remains the same. And what you're seeing now is the big the big wealth divide. Remember, Barack Obama was going to come in and even everything out. He didn't tell you that he was going to give all the money to the upper class and impoverish the middle class and impoverish the poor people. He didn't tell you that. He said he's just going to make it fair. So by making it fair, he pushed more people down to the lower middle class and did nothing for the lower, lower class. And it's not saying it's all Barack Obama. I understand there's carryover from the Bush tax cuts and all that stuff and all the – I know all the corporations panicked at the end of the Bush tax cuts. I get it. I understand all that. But the policies that we have in place are not sustainable. Now I'm going to let Ron Paul talk about Glass-Steagall so you can get a little bit better grasp on on what this really is and why it's important. Because we had economic stability for a long time until this went out the window. And then when this goes out the window, then there's a lot of issues going on. So here is the, uh, here's the Glass-Steagall clip, and I will pick you guys up on the backside. Thanks for listening, everybody. Be sure to follow me on Twitter. We are not cattle, the number one. Check out the Facebook page, We Are Not Cattle. And also um, tune in every Tuesday and Thursday night. I'm here, 9 to 11. Once again, trying to spread knowledge. And we all need to spread knowledge. And I love hearing your calls. So if you got some time tonight, you're sitting around, and you're trying to think about how you can how you can make a bigger impact or something that you've done that's made an impact in your community, call us up. 602-753-1916. So here's a clip from the crazy Ron Paul and then um and I don't I mean that sarcastically. That's everybody should know. The crazy Ron Paul telling you what's going to happen in the future because once again, Keynesian economics and Austrian economics are two totally different schools of thought, and you know what we're under right now is basically we're an occupied country, 
and were occupied by the Federal Reserve and by foreign corporations, international corporations, excuse me. Because most of them are foreign because they have their headquarters in some little country. And then they put like, I've seen, if you guys haven't seen like the Dateline and stuff like this, where they have like their international headquarters and it'll be like a um, a little, um, what do you call those things? A little starfish, like telecom, little starfish, you know, recorder up at the front, excuse me, a speakerphone up at the front. I used to sell those. I don't know how I didn't remember what it was. Like a polycom up at the front and then you page somebody and it's like one person working in the global headquarters. And the CEO's got an office there, but he's never there. So, anyway, sorry for the diatribe. Here's a clip from Ron Paul, and then I'll pick it up on the backside, and we'll get into um, we're gonna get into more some banker manipulation. But guess what? There is hope on the horizon. We got some people in there trying to reenact Glass Steagall. So let's hope. Here's the uh, here's the clip. Enjoy. There's two different levels to this part of the conversation. One is what we we're talking about yesterday, according to Bloomberg, Bank of America had uh, one of its um, subsidiary units downgraded. It, it had uh, uh, its um, credit rating, in essence, uh, downgraded. And so it moved the derivatives from the Merrill Lynch unit uh, to a subsidiary that was uh, insured. So uh, the FDIC disagreed with the transfer, but the bank says it doesn't need their approval. And there was a University of Missouri, Kansas City uh, regulator said the concern is there's always going to be an enormous temptation to dump the losers onto the insured institution. Uh, there is no law that is governing, uh, governing this. So all of these derivatives, I think there was $53 trillion worth of this stuff, they try to dump into insured deposits. So if this all goes bad... Uh, the taxpayers are at least partially on the hook. No, they'll they'll be they'll really be on the hook. And and already we've had a lot of those derivatives dumped on us in 08. You know, the, right. uh, some of these mortgage derivatives ended up being bought by the uh, Federal Reserve. We didn't even it didn't even have to get the Congress involved. I mean, the, the uh, Federal Reserve just did it to bail out some uh, some of the banks and uh, the corporations that were involved. So no, this is a transfer, and uh, this is why. Uh, you know, I voted against, you know, the repeal of Glass-Steagall, uh, not because I'm against banks in a free market. They can do different things and they can invest, but they should stand to lose if they lose. But when you have the lender of last resource and you have these guarantees and insurance backed up by the taxpayer, it just encourages this. And uh, a derivative is just a, a wild bet. And uh, they, there's nothing behind these bets. And they're backing up these bets and they're leveraged uh, with taxpayers' money. So I think that uh, this derivative thing will explode. And it'll be much, much worse than uh, what we went through in 2008. And the fact that they did this shifting just recently means that they might think we're getting awfully close to that date uh, when it will be unsustainable. So we've already crossed the metaphorical Rubicon, if you will, on that uh, on that note, because... There's nowhere we can go. There's too many derivatives out there, and derivatives is one thing to watch for, and then you got to watch for the bond market. There's a bunch of things that we have to watch for because now now that we've gotten ourselves into this pickle, if you will, we're just basically painted into a corner. And so what do we do? Well, 
we just try to reinstitute Glass-Steagall, try to plug, plug the ship a little bit, and then once again point out the people that made this happen. Point out the people that are at fault here because when this thing goes, it's going to go pretty quickly. So we do have some, once again, some hope. I always like to have hope. I like to have hope. I like to have fun, but I also like to be serious too. So you're going to get the the whole, you know, the whole spectrum tonight from me as far as you, I've got some funny stories, I've got some, you know, some heartfelt stories. But then we got to get serious on this economic stuff for a little while because of just the way that it it's going to play out. It's just something that we need to be aware of. And you need to tell other people because believe me, MSNBC and Fox and CNN, they're all going to get their Keynesian economist on there. And they're all going to tell you what you want to hear, and that everything's fine. Don't worry about it. These people are fear mongering. Don't you know? Don't sweat it. It's just, it's just math, guys. It's just math. You can't grow at it forever. Once again, that's why, that's why you see all these prices going up everywhere. Everything's more expensive for a reason. It's because your dollar is being devalued. That means tomorrow, it's, it's just basic economics 101. The time value of money, the reason that a dollar is worth more today than it will be worth in two days is because of inflation. But like I said, on the lighter side, we've got some people in Congress fighting for us. So I'm going to play a clip here, and this is from the senator that's trying to get this legislation put back in. And then she ends up getting questioned by some of these people from Squawk Box. Which is really funny if you watch the video clip. I'll put the video clip on the on the website. If you watch the actual video, in the bottom right-hand corner, it's like, coming up at 10 a.m., Jamie Dimon. And then coming up after that, the former VP of Shell Oil. It's like all of the criminals lining up to come and talk about how great the economy is. I mean, give me a freaking break. Really? Don't fall for that. All right, so here we go. So here's the squawk box slips. A little bit long. It's about five minutes, but at about two minutes, it gets real interesting because the senator just absolutely gets real with these people and basically just smacks them around and then throws them back in their seats. Absolutely awesome. So here's the clip. Enjoy, everybody. I'll see you guys in about five minutes. Senator, I'm going to just jump in here and, uh, sure. and, and ask you what you would say to some of the criticisms of your proposed bill here. For example, we were speaking to Chris Whalen earlier on today from uh, Carrington Investment Services, and he was saying it would be hugely disruptive to impose this new Glass-Steagall. And one of the things that he says could be a result is it would really hurt credit creation, which obviously in turn would hurt the economy. What would you say, for example, to that? You know, that was pretty much what the banks were saying back in 1932 and 1933. They kept saying no, no, no to Glass-Steagall. They raised all kinds of objections to it. And they kept hammering away at it because they wanted to be able to get access to those deposits in order to fuel more speculative trading. And what this says is no, we can't do that. If you're going to have FDIC insurance, you're going to have savings accounts and checking accounts. They really do have to be walled off. Remember, we have 50 years following the passage of Glass-Steagall in which we had a tiny number of bank failures. That whole boom and bust cycle from 1797 to 1933, 
went away. And in that period of time, we built a strong, robust middle class. What happened is we started chipping away, and part of the chipping away at that was to say, load up the banks with more and more risk, get them more integrated, and let them get bigger and bigger. So, so, and when that happened, we were in the position of having to bail them out when they got into big financial trouble. Senator, I, I will push back, though, on the relative security that you're portraying Glass-Steagall to have given us, because Continental Illinois, yeah. in the early 80s, was the, the seventh 80s. largest bank in America. It yeah. failed, almost set off basically a, another major banking crisis. Shouldn't we just tell the American consumer that no matter what we do, there will be bank boom and bust cycles, no matter what the laws and regulations? You can't protect everything. No, that is just wrong. Why? Look at the history. From I have seven, looked at history. We're filled with booms and busts from, from the Dutch no, tulip no, no. crisis to now. From 1797 to 1933, the American banking system crashed about every 15 years. In 1933, we put good reforms in place for which Glass-Steagall was the centerpiece. And from 1933 to the early 1980s, that's a 50-year period, we didn't have any of that. None. We kept the system steady but and secure. That, that, it, and it was only as we started deregulating, you start hitting the S&L crisis, and what did we do? We deregulated some more. And then you hit long-term capital management at the end of the 90s. And what did we do as a country? This country continued to deregulate more. And then we hit the big crash in 2008. You are not going to defend the proposition that regulation can never work. I, I, did, I didn't work. say regulation never works, Senator, by, by far and away. And I agree, there were fewer bank failures in that time after Glass-Steagall. Fewer as in, of the big ones, yeah. zero. Continental Illinois was the seventh biggest bank in the United States. It, 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 and it, it failed. 50 years to get there. But, Senator, you're on the record, you're on the record saying Glass-Steagall Glass would not have prevented the financial crisis. Not all by itself. That's absolutely right. But what Glass-Steagall can do is it can wind some more of the risk out of the system. It can help bring down the size of the largest banking institutions. Don't forget, you said there was too much concentration in the banking industry in 2008. Now here we are in 2013, and the big four are 30% bigger. That puts too much risk back in the system. Well, there's other ways, of, uh, there's other ways of, of shrinking them, um, obviously. But well, with all due respect, Senator, every report I've read, every person I've spoken to says that there's a very, very, very slim chance of this, of this even passing. Well, let me put it this way. If you don't fight for it, the chances are zero. And remember who my partners are in this one. I've got John McCain standing with me. I couldn't ask for a better fighter. We've got Maria Cantwell. We've got Angus King. We've got a Democrat, a Republican, an Independent. All people who are but, willing but, to get but, out Senator, there and you, you fight. know what the prospects are. The House has voted 37 times to... Um, you know, on, on Obamacare to, to yeah. defund it. And it, I mean, is this any different? I mean, you're making a statement, but, but we want Congress to do things that actually have a chance of, of, of happening and, and become law. This seems like more of the actually, same. Go ahead. No, no, but I was just going to say, you know, I remember going on television multiple times, including here, when I talked about the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, when the big banks were spending more than a million dollars a day lobbying against it, and when everybody told me, you'll never get that thing through. Why are you even trying? The chances of passing it are slim to none. And yet look around. 
We now have a good, strong Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. It's recovered a half a billion dollars for families who got cheated. It's out there working on behalf of military families, on behalf of seniors, on behalf of students. We got that agency because we got out and fight, fought for it. I actually believe in that. There you go. So there are good people in Congress, everybody. So don't just think that they're all... I mean, the majority of them are pretty shady. We'll just use a, a nice analogy for them. Shady is probably the best thing I could call them. But you do have some good people up there. And I'm not a huge fan of John McCain, but if he get, wants to get behind reform that's going to try to stabilize this, absolutely. I'm all down for it. So, so now we're starting to get a little bit of a picture of of what's going on and and how we all got here. And so now I'm going to take you guys back to talk about what she was talking about, about the regulations and about, you know, just about the things that went down that we probably forgot. And this is an article from 2011 because I just got bored the other night and I was trying to think about something to do and I was like... I'll go research Goldman Sachs people. That sounds like fun. So I googled Hank Paulson and I found a couple of articles. And this is one of the things that I found that I thought was was very um, was very telling. And this is not a very long article. Once again, I'll post all of these on the website wearenotcattle.net. It'll be under the show notes for podcast number seventeen. So here here it is, and you can Google search this. This is a Forbes article and it says Hank Paulson and the and the Wall Street slash Washington axis of power. And it says the revelation that the Treasury Secretary Henry Paulson, Hank Paulson, excuse me, in July of 2008, just before the apex of the market meltdown, told a group of hedge fund managers, many of former Goldman Sachs stars, that Uncle Sam had a plan to take over Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, wiping out their common stock and preferred shares. There was a Terrible betrayal of public trust, if accurate. Paulson had no business meeting in private with a group of hedge fund managers and investment bankers to give any material inside information about the intent of the government to put the censorship in the broken in the broken bankrupt quasi-public entities that supported the private mortgage market. Should this accusation be proven, the holders of Fannie Mae's stock the holders of Fannie Mae stock have every right to sue Uncle Sam for favoring the rapacious insiders over the naive over the naive outsiders. Now comes the even more damning disclosure that Henry Paulson played a key role in facilitating the meltdown of Wall Street years before he was called to duty by George Bush and had to use trillions of taxpayer funds to remedy what he helped facilitate in the first place. The evidence sent by email from a source called Aileris shows that in 2000, Paulson led a charge to ease tight capital rules on Washington so that the firms could leverage themselves out to a dangerous 30 to 40 times equity capital. Does that sound familiar, John Corzine? rather than the much less risky 15 times that existed before 2004. In Paulson's SEC testimony in February of 2000, 
the then Goldman Sachs chairman. Once again, if you guys haven't noticed a pattern here, Goldman Sachs to the Treasury Department or the Fed. One of the two. Take your pick. They're in place all over the world. It's absolutely ridiculous. Urge the SEC to change the net capital rule to allow more effective or efficient use of capital. The reason giving, given, this is the single most important factor in driving a significant part of our business offshore. Paulson apparently wanted to rule liberalize, wanted the rule liberalized so that he could allow Goldman Sachs to use the same amount of leverage in its business as its European competitors. And that's what it that's what all this stuff was, was trying to make us like Europe. And they were talking about how great Europe was and we need to be more like Europe. In case you guys haven't noticed, it's a reoccurring theme because we are all essentially owned by the Bank of England. Just I'm sorry, but that's for your deep research. You will find that, that all signs point to England. It says this change in capital rules, unknown to me and most of my media brethren, was one of the most shocking disclosures in a documentary film, Inside Job, which won an Oscar last year. It underscores the iron, ironic possibility that both, but Paulson both led the charge to weaken net capital rules on Wall Street in order to puff up profit-making machines, and when it's all over, when it's all turned sour, Paulson, as Treasury Secretary had to join with Fed Chairman Ben Bernanke to bail out most of the whole lot of terrible mess that had been created. Once again, bailing out the bankers for the stuff that they created. It's the same thing every time. You just have to read a little bit of history, and then you'll know the playbook. That's why they always say that, oh, every your your child won't wake up tomorrow if we don't bail out the banks. So continuing, if true, Paulson was first on the side of reckless gambling and then became the chief bailouter. He did. In any case, by 2004, the consolidated supervision of broker-dealer holding companies legislation was enacted. It allowed for a voluntary alternative method of computing deducting to net capital from certain broker deals. This alternative method permits a broker deal dealer to calculate net capital requirements for the market and the derivatives related to credit risk. So there's your derivatives again, everybody. And once again, derivatives are just bets. They're speculation on what they believe is going to happen. This voluntary method of computing deducting Computing deductions to net capital allowed Citigroup, Bank of America, Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, Morgan Stanley, Merrill Lynch, and Goldman Sachs to carry a much larger inventory of securities and on and off balance sheet. That's one of the really bad things about derivatives is that they're not on balance sheets. So you don't really know how much is out there. They are out in Never Never Land. To be fair about it, Though, and it is a key change made, the language insisted that the regulators would have to satisfy themselves that the firms have robust credit and risk management possibilities and practices. Complete, if I had a bullshit button, I would press it right now, but that's complete BS. Because, anyway, if you, if you study this stuff, I mean, just watching the way that they do things is just kind of crazy. 
So the and I believe me, I'm not an expert, but I know enough to be dangerous. So the lack of judgment on the part of firms who was not countered by the regulations, the Fed, the comptroller of the secretary, the SEC, and the New York Stock Exchange, all being of sound mind and body to judge whether, quote, the robust credit and management policies and practices were sufficient in supply and effective shape. And you know how it all ended. The rule change embodied the amendments of the Security Exchange Act of 1934. Ta-da! What was she just talking about? 1934. A voluntary alternative method of computing and deducting net capital for certain broker-dealers. This alternative method permits permits broker-dealers to use mathematical models to to calculate net capital requirements for marketings and derivatives-related risk. According to the source who does not wish to be identified, Hank was was the one pressing the hardest for this new freedom to expand the level of of proprietary trading. As my source wrote today, Hayek was right. We lived through an engineered crisis that was made by those responsible for it ever more powerful. And for those of you that don't know who Hayek is, if you under if you know who Mises is, um Mises was I, I think he was a I think Hayek was his protege, if I do remember correctly. I think Hayek came after Mises. But for everybody that for if I'm speaking Greek to everybody, then Mises is actually Ludwig von Mises. Um, they actually have a school named after him in Auburn, Alabama now called the Mises Institute. And that's the Austrian School of Economics. It's the smallest economic group, but it's the longest lasting um it's the longest, I guess, sanctioned group of economic theory. It's been around longer than anything else, and it basically is the polar opposite of Keynesian economics. Keynesian economics, they try to predict, manipulate, and steer, whereas Austrian economics takes into account actual human behavior. So it's not number crunchers and supercomputers, it's actually people thinking about other people. And I won't get too much onto this because I do need to take a break here in a minute. But deflation, if you want to read something that will absolutely blow your mind, go read – I'll actually put it on my site. I put it on there before, but I'll put it on there again along with this podcast. Ben Bernanke wrote – had a speech, and I think if memory serves me right, it was 2001. I want to say October of 2001 where he talked about what he would do if faced with deflation. Now, deflation – is a central banker's worst nightmare because that means that your money is going to be worth actually more tomorrow than it was worth today. So, but if you look at an Austrian school of e- economics, it's it's basically a, a just a slight correction. They consider that a correction, and they just say basically leave your hands off of it and let the free market work it out. But Keynesianism is all about manipulating get your grubby little hands on it. They got to be involved. They got to be pumping. They got to be adjusting rates and they got to be, you know, they got to be pumping money in, adjusting interest rates, adjusting borrowing rates, adjusting LIBOR rates. We got they got to be meddling with everything. 
So that's the two different schools of thought. And in a really simplified nutshell, it's much more deeper than that, much more complex. When I have the um, the economist that I listened to, you know, um, last week, when I have him on the podcast, I'll get him to break it all down, because he was from the Keynesian school of economics, the Ben Bernanke school, and he would, and that's what you're taught, and you just drill it out. It's kind of like it's kind of like public school. You're taught to be a first-level thinker. You're taught to be a repeater. You're taught to not question authority. You, I mean, it's just the same thing. And after 1,800 hours of not questioning authority and doing what you're told, and if you do what is said in the book, what that book says that you're reading, doesn't matter if the book is accurate, doesn't matter if there's contradictions to the book, doesn't matter if there's different viewpoints, you're being tested on what's in the book. And then once you get out of college or excuse me, out of high school or whatever school, and you know what was in that book, then you're supposed to, quote-unquote, have knowledge. It's typically never the case. I think the professor said this one time, and I've said it on the show before, but it really rings true. He said, when I graduated high school, I thought I knew everything. When I graduated college, I realized I didn't know as much as I thought. When I got my master's, I realized I didn't know hardly anything. And then when I got my doctorate, I realized I didn't know shit. And that's true. The more you learn, the more you realize that you don't know. And that's why people get on Facebook about Trayvon Martin and stuff like that. Because they think they know. Because they're not in a position where they're learning. They're not learning anymore. Learning has ceased. They don't want to know new information. If they want to know new information, they'll go to YouTube and watch a video. Or they'll you know, do something like that. They don't get entrenched in it. They don't think about it. They don't ponder. They don't question. They don't have different data points that they spring off into different directions. They don't do that. That's why you saw everybody get their law degree overnight. Well, this is terrible. And then you had somebody like Charles Barkley. And once again, I don't like plugging celebrities, but Charles Barkley is kind of a galvanizing guy. But I'm going to read what he said because I couldn't find the audio for it. And then we're going to take a break. But here's what Charles Barkley said. He said, well, I agree with the verdict. I feel sorry for the young kid got killed, but I don't have enough evidence to charge him. Something clearly went wrong that night. Something clearly went wrong. I feel bad for anybody that loses a kid, but if you look at the case and you don't make it, there was some racial profiling, no question about it. But something, hap something happened that ch changed the dynamic of that night. And I know that it's probably not a popular opinion among most people, but just looking at the evidence, I would agree with the verdict. And he goes on to say, I just feel bad because I don't like when race gets, gets out in the media because I don't think the media has a pure heart, as I call it. There's very few people that have a pure heart when it comes to race. Racism is wrong in any shape or form. A lot of black people are racist too. I think sometimes when people talk about racism, they, they say only white people are racist. There is a lot of black people who are racist. I don't, I don't like 
when it gets out there in the media because I don't think the media has clean hands. You, Mr. Barkley, you're going to get the award. You are going to get the George Bush Award. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. Oh, yes. Charles Barkley is 100% on target. 100%. The thing that is the saddest part about the Trayvon Martin incident, other than the fact that we lost a young child, a 17-year-old man, that was confused. I mean, everybody's confused at 17. Show me somebody that wasn't. I mean, probably one of those Army prep school kids that gets brainwashed and gets shoveled into the service. But the saddest part about it, other than that, was the fact that the media made it what it was. That kind of stuff, as TJ and I said... And TJ's a young black guy. He's probably 22 years old. I can't remember. I think he's 21 or 22. And he's got feelings towards it too. I could hear that he had feelings towards it. Everybody does. It's horrible to lose somebody like that. And it's not equal force. I get all that. I mean, it's stand your ground. I get it. I get all of it. You lost a human. You killed another human being, man. Everybody's going to be upset. But the media... And the social engineers are going to take that, and they're going to pull at the heartstrings. They want us divided so bad because they know that we know they're a bunch of criminals. And I don't mean everybody, but I do mean a lot of them. I got local reps here that want to take my guns, local senators in the state of Georgia that wanted to take my guns. I got a local, I got a, a senator, thank God he's retiring, that said, it's just metadata. You dumbass, you don't even know what metadata is. Get up there with your arrogant, pompous attitude and say that, oh, it's no big deal. That's what it is. The sad part is now they're going to string it out, and they're trying to string it out, and they're going to try to string it out. Because they don't want us together. Don't want us pointing the finger at Washington. Don't want us pointing the finger at the big banks. They don't want that stuff. They want us to be involved in little squabbles in our daily activity and not look at the big picture. Well, you got one guy that is looking at the big picture, and I'm talking to a bunch of people that know about the big picture. And we got our eyes on you, Washington. And we know that you got our eyes on us, but we don't give a rip. Every time I plug in my camera to go do a, a podcast interview, or every time I get on Xbox, once again, I give Microsoft, I give Skype, all these people that are in bed with the government, I give you all the number one salute. So we're going to take a, about a three-minute break here. I'm going to play some um, some David Icke for everybody. Let's... To expand your train of thought, even if you don't believe in what David Icke says, you know, it's always good to question. So here's the clip. I'll see you guys in about three minutes. Incest was practiced by ancient Egyptian royalty. Mothers married sons and brothers married sisters to keep the power and the money all in the family. Like their Pharaonic ancestors, the British monarchy have a long history of incestuous inbreeding. 
Even in Genesis, we have one version of this, but you find this all over the world, in every culture. As the Bible says in Genesis, there were giants on the earth in those days, or in the earth as it puts it, and also after that, where the sons of God came in unto the daughters of men, and they bare children to them. The same became mighty men which were of old, men of renown. These hybrid bloodlines, this interbreeding, produced the kings and queens and the elite royal families of the ancient world, where they claim their right, their genetic right, to be the king or the queen or the leader because of their connection to the gods. And um, all over the world you find this. And, and what do we have today? We have the queen as head of state of this country purely because of her DNA. In Sumer you find the same. Sumer which became Babylon, which um, became Iraq, um, has ancient texts and tablets which describe the same recurring global story of this interbreeding to create this hybrid race. The hybrid race became known as the demigods, part human, part god, because of this um, interbreeding connection. This hybrid bloodline went off across the world, up into northern Europe. It became the power behind the Roman Empire and the creation of the Roman Church, which became, of course, global Christianity. Much more about that uh, as we go along. Uh, and everywhere it went, it became the, the royal bloodline, the, the elite bloodline, the one that became the leaders and the kings and the queens, and also the, the, the people in charge behind the scenes. And it interbred with other um, such bloodlines in northern Europe, to, became the, to become the royal families and aristocratic families of Europe. And so today, these hybrid bloodlines are known as the Illuminati, the Illuminated Ones, and they're the ones that control the transnational corporations, governments, the banking system, the whole shebang that um, dictates and... Uh, controls the direction of society. Okay, like I said, take him for what he's worth, much like my information. If you if you like what I say, take it. If you don't like my certain opinion on something or if you don't like my perspective, then um then leave it. But the fact of the matter is is that we are controlled by a, a ruling class. We've always been controlled. Humans have always been controlled by a ruling class. This is what I just never have understood. It's it's history. You've always had a ruling kind of internal gang of people, whether it was the Carnegies, the the Rockefellers, the Rothschilds, the Vanderbilts. I mean, you name it. The people of immense wealth have always been able to manipulate pull strings. That's just what they do. And unfortunately now, we have a select group of individuals that are probably, I would say, you know, in the book that Rothkop wrote and that's right here next to me, it says about 6,000 of these people, you know, minions and everything included. 
So you've basically got 6,000 people controlling and steering the planet. And they don't have complete control because if you listen to an interview, and I should post this on Facebook so that everybody can kind of get up to speed if you're if you're just new to the the fact that everything that you see in front of you is not reality. But there's a former World Bank head, and I think I've said this on the podcast before, and I don't want to misquote her, so I'll go on the low side. She's actually one of my friends on Facebook, and I'm trying to get her to come on, but she's in there trying to fight um, all kinds of adjustments and, and new reforms and legislation inside the World Bank, basically disclosing all this stuff to everybody, and there's a big divide in the World Bank because some people have a vested interest for keeping this crazy system going. It's just the way it is. Don't care about how it impacts you and I. We're just numbers to these people. They'll never have to see us. Once again, it's like it's the craziest thing ever. If they had to come into your house and shoot you in the head, they would probably never be able to do it. But all you are are just marks on a piece of paper. It's like, oh, well, we got a new Gardasil shot that's going to probably kill a bunch of people, but we're going to make like $300 million on this. Can anybody say bonus? Woo! bonus go to Tahiti son that's what it is that's the level and it's really kind of crazy of course it's eugenics at the top if you really want to get into it but I don't want to go down that rabbit trail that is not the show that I want to do tonight so the global controllers control according to this former World Bank executive roughly with their Sister corporations, shell corporations, transnationals, about 40% of the global wealth of the world. Let that sink in for a little bit. 6,000 people. If you've ever been to a college baseball game, that's about 6,000 people. Those people control the fate of everyone else around the world. Now, you want to talk about an unjust system. You think Trayvon Martin was unjust. Holy shnikes. What would you call that? I would call it criminal. Call it what it is. That's criminal. And they want to protect their wealth. They want to They want to shield it. They don't want you to have it. Because they... And a lot of them didn't earn it, and that's kind of sad. But, you know, you did have some of the super elite that did work for it. And, you know, I'm one of those capitalists that I, I look at that, and there's got to be a different way. There's got to be a different way. Everybody says, you know, the hardest million to make is your first million. So what really makes this possible is the system that we've set up. The system of... Of them being able to put numbers into a computer and then charging you interest on the numbers they just put into a computer. They didn't do anything for it. They didn't do anything for it. So let's go into fractional reserve lending. And then we'll get into the news and stuff. So kind of all over the map with this finance stuff. But I've got to try to piece the puzzle together for some of these people. What is fractional reserve lending? Well, there used to be standards, okay? So in this crazy, bonkers joke of an economic system that we have, banks are supposed to keep 
of whatever they loan out in reserve. So I'm going to play this really quick. It's about a minute-long clip, and I'll say it much more eloquently than I will. And, um, and then I'll elaborate on the backside. So what is the national debt? When government spends more than it collects in taxes, it has to borrow the difference by selling interest-bearing IOUs, such as U.S. bonds. When a U.S. bank buys a $100 U.S. bond, it gets to loan out 10 times that amount. So the bank not only gets back the $100 plus interest from the federal government, it gets to loan out another $1,000 it doesn't have and charge additional interest. Banks are allowed to create this extra money out of thin air. So, banks aren't making only 6% interest, for example. They are really making over 1,000% interest. That's why bank buildings are the biggest in every town on the planet. This system of lending way more than you have is called fractional reserve lending. Almost all our money is created by banks, lending it to people, to companies, or to government. Okay. So that's that's about as far as I'm going to go on, on the financial stuff for tonight. Because if I go any further, I'm going to get into an incomplete diatribe. And it's probably going to take up like three hours of a podcast. Maybe I should do just a whole financial breakdown, Austrian versus um, Keynesian economy. You know what? That's what we'll do. For the, for the Tuesday show, I will literally break down what Keynesian economics is, what Austrian economics is, what derivatives are. We'll do the whole shooting match. I'll try to give you guys as much information as I can. Barring any kind of crazy, you know, open war on Syria or something like that, that's what we'll shoot for next Tuesday. So look for a bunch of audio clips. Look for, you know, just jam-packed information. And if you're not a finance person, if you don't want to understand what the national debt is, if you don't want to understand why your finances are being destroyed – Pick me up next Tuesday night at nine or next Thursday night at nine o'clock. But Tuesday night at nine, we'll be doing the financial special, and I'll see if I can't get a couple of the guys from um, Liberty Express Radio to pop in because I know Peter Schiff's on there. I don't know if I'll be able to get him, but um, there's a couple of guys on the show that are uh, they're real savvy on that network that are real savvy. Once again, um, thank you for them for picking up my podcast. Thank you for um, Liberty Movement Radio for always carrying the show um you guys do great work there's a bunch of good guys on there so one of the things i tune into when i'm just riding around in the car so you know that you can go to the uh, tune in app and get the uh you know get the app there and listen to it on the road if you want or just plug it into your auxiliary so shifting gears oh it's my favorite topic of all time everybody and it's the topic that i actually started the show with we are going to talk about the police state. Because now, and this will be the opener for everybody. It's so exciting. I can't wait for this. I really can't wait to go fly again. It's going to be so much fun. And this is out of um, Rochester, New York. 
and this is um, WHEC um, TV reporting, News 10 out of New York. Looks like a NBC station. And the article is entitled, Valet Parked Cars Searched Under TSA Regulations. Of course, I mean, obviously you're a terrorist if you valet park your car, obviously. Because that's what a terrorist would do. That's how they would get in. So ridiculous. Anyway, continuing with the story. In Rochester, New York, um, she says that no one had warned that someone was going to search her car after she left to catch her flight. So the woman contacted News 10 NBC. We found out it happened to her car that she valeted parked. Those are all. Those are the only cars that get inspected. Of course, yeah, those are the only ones until they roll it out on the street and we'll be just you know flagging us into checkpoints right by the uh, right by the airport. It's going to be lots of fun. So if the security feels it necessary to search some cars in the name of safety, why not search all of them? Oh, I literally didn't read that, but I guess I could be a propagandist or I could be a social engineer. This this is crazy. Lori is – oh, I just lost uh, – I had a refresh on the feed. Um, Lori – Izuka walked to her waiting car at the Greater Rochester International Airport after returning from a trip, and that's what she found out. Notice to say that there was an inspected after she left for her flight. There was basically a little sticker. She's, I was furious. And never mentioned to me that when I booked the valet or when I was picked up in the car when it was dropped off. So nobody told her that they were going to search her car. Azuka's car was inspected by the valet attendants and on orders from the TSA. Of course, they're gods. They've got big, you know, black badges on their shirts. I mean, they're they're wearing uniforms. I mean, Jesus. But the but why only valet parked cars? That's what News 10 wanted to talk to the TSA director about. We reached him by phone. Berkeley Breen asked are the cars in short-term parking and long-term parking lots getting searched as well? John McCaffrey, TSA, said, no, those vehicles are in the garage. Short-term and long-term parking, even if they carry plenty of large amounts of explosives, would not cause much damage to the front of the airport. But those used valet, the car would be there for a half an hour or an hour, and, and so there is a vulnerability. Yeah, because, okay... It makes kind of sense. So an NBC News 10 went to went to the valet park and asked one of the attendants to show us the notice that they put in the cars. We asked, you're required, they tell you, or you have to search the car? And the valet parking attendant said, I have to do it. We also noticed a large sign that alerts customers that her vehicle was inspected. A sign notice on the kiosk window. Isaiah also says or says it was not there when she dropped her car off. I think the public should be aware of the fact that the car is going to be searched. They should just be informed of it. No, 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 no. Listen, listen. You are a slave, lady. You still these people still think they live in a free country. It's kind of funny. Like you are a slave. So imagine what would happen to a slave, and that's what's going to happen to the American citizen. You can't be trusted. We are all criminals. 
We are all criminals because of terrorism. Such a joke. And the reason all this is going on is because the only thing keeping our economy going is the police state and the and and the fear of terrorism and all the new spy gadgetry. And that is the only thing that's keeping this thing going. And it's getting bigger and bigger and it's expanding. And it's just, you know, they think it's fantastic. I think it's a crock of, you know what. So NBC News 10 asked the owner of the company that runs the valet parking if they would put up a sign, but he wouldn't answer. TSA said it's part of an overall security plan that is a proactive move. Attendants said that they are doing their best, or they are doing it about once a month. So, don't we all feel better now that the TSA is searching our bags? I do. I feel so much better. So, let's continue. What really is going on here with the with the theater? Well, if you look at what happened with Adam Kokesh, albeit let's let's take the I'm going to for a moment I'm going to try to take and everybody that's in the liberty movement please don't slay me I'm going to take the sadist side for a minute well the guy did rack a shotgun he did do that he videotaped it it was illegal it was an illegal act he needed to be arrested okay and the fact that he showed that he had a shotgun, they know that he's armed. Okay. But do you need two helicopters, a SWAT truck, a SWAT team, um, fully armored with bullet shields to serve a search warrant? Do we really need that? And after doing the podcast last night with the guys, they're saying that it's – and I, I don't know where they're getting these figures from, so they could be inflated. They could be underinflated. Who knows? said it probably cost the, about $2 million because they were there for about five hours. Is anybody mad yet? $2 million to go serve a search warrant. Not an arrest warrant, a search warrant. And most search warrants, as we talked about last night, are usually served in the morning because everybody's still asleep. Or if you're going to have an arrest warrant, it's usually served in the morning, not at 7.30 at night, prime time, so they could make a big spectacle of it. That's the theater. The theater is to show everybody that the police state is keeping them safe. And at any opportunity they can, they're going to flex their proverbial muscle and show you, once again, camera crews were live on the scene rolling moments after the raid happened. They were there with the raid. Daryl Young even said that. He's like, the camera crew's out here, the cops are out here, I have no idea what happened. He was probably gone. He messaged me at like... 7.15, and then he – or, yeah, and then at 9 o'clock, it was, it was on. I think the raid happened like 7.45. I can't remember. But you have that. You have, the, you have what happened up in Boston, and I know what the statists are going to say. Well, we're looking for a terrorist. 
okay? Do you need to shut down the city and pull people out of their house at gunpoint and push them and make sure they got their hands up? Do you need to point guns at everybody? No, you don't need to do that. It's one dude. It's not some cell. I don't know what it is with our... And this was part of the show, so get ready because here comes my absolute annihilation of our culture. And our culture is turning into a bunch of chickens. We're scared, or you're acting like you're scared. What are you scared of? Are you scared of a terrorist? Remember, you're eight times more likely to get killed by a cop than you are a terrorist. You're, you're 1.25 times more likely to get killed by a bee or a wasp than a terrorist. It just doesn't happen. You're more likely to get struck by lightning twice in the same year than get killed by a terrorist. Can we see how silly it is? And then the surveillance state on top of all of this. What is it building to? I always get that question too. What is all this about? What is the, what's the end game for these people? Well, I don't think there is an end game. I really don't give them that much credit. I mean, there could be. You could have a plan. You could have a couple of different variations of the plan. You know, the social engineers are pretty smart. But I think what you see right now out of the establishment is just pure panic. Because people aren't buying their crap anymore. People aren't buying the propaganda anymore. I mean, when you have somebody like Megyn Kelly sit up there and literally say that the tinfoil hat people are going to say that the government killed this guy or going to suspect foul play, but guys in uniforms that lied about Rodney King, that lied about everything else, that shot up innocent people out there with Dorner in a, in a truck, not even remotely resembling what Dorner's car looked like. Two women, not, not a male. You're going to believe those, those guys? Once again, guys, track record, track record. The mainstream media guys, guess what? Enjoy it. Enjoy your fall from stardom. Because the only buddy, only people that are watching you right now, other than people like myself to just monitor and see how full of crap you are and see how you spin things. And there was actually a really good bit that was on um can't remember if it was on the Daily Show. I think it was on the Daily Show. Where they had the three new Fox anchors for prime time. Megan Kelly's getting moved to prime time. And they got their other two anchors, and they are all three blonde women with the same haircut. And they know through all their analytics, through all their studies, that that's what's most appealing to you. They know target audience, people over 40 years old and people with IQs less than 100 and if you watch Fox News and you believe that Bill O'Reilly's your buddy and he wants to help you, go ahead. If you watch Glenn Beck and you believe that Glenn Beck is this great libertarian, uh, <laughs> I'm learning how to be a libertarian. Every day I'm learning. Every day I'm conning. I mean, I'm learning how to be a libertarian. Glenn Beck is the biggest ripoff scam artist. God, I mean, great, he's a great actor. That's what he does. He's acting. Don't buy into that. Don't even buy into everything that I say. Because that's not what it is. 
It's not about buying into stuff. It's not about going with the crowd. It's not about doing things that everybody else are doing. It's not going to get us anywhere as a culture. It's going to just basically turn us into a bunch of – we're going to turn into like idiocracy where all we watch is ouch my balls and 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 drink you know stupid energy drinks because they have electrolytes. Remember, it's what plants need. I mean that movie was so far ahead of its time because that's where we're headed. Because people don't want – they don't care. They don't care anymore. They have creature comforts. But if you're listening to this show, I know you care. So we got to start doing stuff. We got to start organizing. I'm going to organize a um, an in the Fed rally here in the next month. So get ready and look out for that. I'm going to be promoting it on every one of my shows. I'm going to get involved with Georgia activists. I'm going to get involved with other groups that I'm members with. Because Bernanke just said the other day, gotta keep going. Gotta keep that free money coming. Remember, it's not low interest for you. It's not free money for you. It's free money for the banks. And I've gone over this before too, but it's just crazy. Why would the banks why won't the banks flood the market with capital? You know, one of the one of my friends asked that economist that the other day. It's due to hyperinflation. There's another reason behind that. It's not so much due to hyperinflation. Yeah, that is one of the things. But let me ask you this. If you're a greedy-ass banker and you're getting 0% money from the Fed and you can invest it and get a guaranteed return of 2.5% or even 2% or you have the option to lend it out to, say, Suzy Q at 6%, but if you lend it out to five Suzy Qs, three Suzy Qs are going to default because – the economy is not in great shape. There's not a lot of job stability. All these different things. What do you think you're going to do? Remember, you're a greedy-ass banker. You want guaranteed return on investment. You know That's all they talk about in business. Well, I need a return on investment. And that's the way they look at it. They're like, well, I can get my 2.5% and just hang on to this cash. I'm fine with that. I'm cool with that. And that's what they do. They don't loan any of the money out. Big corporations are doing the same thing. They were holding on to see what happened to Obamacare. Now that Obamacare is getting passed, you're going to start CPU and couple and cutting hours. And they're they're already doing it. They're going to try to avoid it because it was written by the insurance companies and the bank lobby. I mean, who do you think is going to be behind something like that that every American is going to have to pay for? Who do you think is going to have their hand in in that? Do you think the ACLU is going to have their hand in that? Making sure that it's very fair for every individual? Oh, no. Oh, no. The big banks are going to lobby. Hey, Goldman Sachs already gets the majority. Is it Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan? One of the two. Once again, this is why you can't trust everything that I say. Goldman Sachs or J.P. Morgan, one of the two of those guys, actually has the contract to do all of the food stamps. I want to say it's J.P. Morgan Chase. Has a contract to do all the food stamp processing. All of it. Gee, that's not a monopoly. No, no, everything's fine. The banks don't ever collude with government. That stuff never happens. That's, that's conspiracy theory. That is conspiracy theory... That banks ever collude with government. You know, it's conspiracy theory that governments ever do anything wrong. Let us never tolerate outrageous conspiracy theories. 
Absolutely. I, I'll stop, George. I'll stop right now. So let's get back to the police state. I got on a little diatribe of the banks, but you know, you put it all together. So what is it all building towards? What's the big crescendo? The big crescendo is more and more clamped down because the police state is becoming the economy. And guess what comes along with the police state coming becoming the economy? Corruption is going to come along right with it. They're going to hold hands together and send us right into tyranny. It'll be so fun. But you know what? That's only if the people let it happen. That's only if we let it happen. It doesn't have to go this way. And I see people... You know what? I've gotten more Facebook friends and Facebook likes and stuff like that over the last week and a half than I've gotten over the last year. And there's a reason. It's because the people are starting to understand the big picture. As soon as it came out that your government was spying on you and you're torturing people and you're putting people in jail like Adam Kokesh and you're putting people in jail like Bradley Manning or trying to put people in jail like Bradley Manning who was already in jail – you know, and being tortured, not really, you know, oh, it's not torture to, you know, go 23-1 on, you know, in, in solitary confinement. That's not torture. That's justice. So wait a minute, this guy blew the whistle. You guys were committing war crimes, and you stick him in a cell and put him under lights for 23 hours and give him one hour of shut-off light, and, and he's the criminal? No, I'm just wanting to make sure that I got that right. Okay, yeah, you're right. But so there's been, over the last, I want to say, and it's been the Obama administration, it's been Bush, it's been everybody. It's a collective march. It's a collective march towards tyranny because if you get into a tyranny, then guess who benefits only the people at the top? That's why the Russians were just so bonkers towards the end of that whole whole regime because there was only like a small little mafia class, just mafia stuff. It's just a small little mafia class that ran everything, and everybody else was just... Living, living impoverished. You know, I used to, I used to have a friend that when I was, um, I think I was 18 years old. She came over here um, from Russia when she was 15, and she talked about the only thing that she ate. And this is back. Let's see, God, let's see. I was 18. So let's do the monkey math. Almost 20 years ago, 15 years ago. We'll just be safe. Fifteen years ago, so right at you know nineteen ninety yeah ninety seven ninety eight something like that, right after you know the the new Russia, after the breakup and everything. But she would tell me that she was always amazed at how much food was at the American stores, always amazed, because she went from a controlled economy which is the government dictating who gets what bread where, who gets this much food, and you only have a couple of choices because there's no com competition. It's just all government stuff. But she would talk about how the only thing that she was able to eat for about two days was toothpaste. And that's where this goes. That's where collectivism goes. You want to eat toothpaste for two days? Go ahead. Not me. Not on my watch. And it's getting creepy. Don't don't get me wrong. The police state's getting real creepy. The NSA just basically came out and said, yeah, well, 
We tried to keep it secret for forever. So let me pull up this other article that I had. And they even said that. They're like, well, we tried to keep it secret, but I guess you guys found us out. I mean, what kind of craziness is that? I'll see if I still have it here. It'll take me just a moment, everybody. I'm sorry. But um, there's here's a couple of stories I'll get to really quick just for some fun anecdotal stuff. While I pull this up and get the and get the link pulled up here, actually, um, here it here it is right here. Sorry, my internet's running a little slow. Alrighty, and let's see where it pulls up. Forgive been an interesting night to say the least. So, okay, so here is the um here is the article titled and this is from the Associated Press and I want to read this because this is um this came out um on the this must be a revision because uh, it came out at 2:15 uh, in the morning. And it says hostile hill territory over NSA surveillance. Okay, so in Washington DC At the House Intelligence Committee almost a month ago on a highly controversial NSA surveillance surveillance issues, it might turn into surveillance, who knows, administration officials were well-treated by both both Republicans and Democrats. All right, well, I just had to call in on my cell phone because something crashed all of my browser and Skype and everything. So that was interesting. Sorry, everybody. It looks like that is going to end it for the podcast. So I apologize to everybody that tuned in and um, got cut off. But tune in on Tuesday night, 9 o'clock. Tuesday night, 9 to 11, I will be here. So... Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you listen live, if you're listening to the recorded podcast, what basically happened was I had um, Skype just basically malfunction while I was reading an article. I don't even know what the heck happened. And, um, yeah, so Skype malfunctioned, then all my browsers malfunctioned um, almost simultaneously. And um, I don't know if I just ran out of memory or what, but I've never had this issue before. But... Ironically, it was when I was covering the NSA article. So thanks for listening, everybody. Remember, get a friend, get informed, and get involved. And uh, we'll see you Tuesday night, 9 o'clock p.m. Be here. Be part of the movement. Take care, everybody. You deserve your freedom.